It is the 90s, and there is time for the Pie Factory Podcast. That sneeze was at no cost to you, the consumer. Initial tests indicate all systems go. Welcome once again to another action-packed episode. Mega, mega episode. This is a mega-sode of the Pie Factory podcast. Once again, from his humble abode somewhere in the Chicago area hinterlands, this is Jimmy G. And also from, um, I wouldn't say so much humble as I would cluttered um, abode, also in Chicagoland. Uh, this is, uh, uh, what, what am I this week? Am I Nuance Oyster? Am I Screaming Sean again? Am I just Sean? Am I'll do I, screaming. Uh, we'll do Screaming Sean this week. Okay, yeah, because I do tend to talk pretty loudly. So, yeah, Screaming Sean. Hi, everybody. If you have any ideas for a name for Sean, write them down on a piece of paper, crumble it up, and throw it away. You'll be glad you did. Sampo. So, how are we doing today, Sean and Shawnee C or whatever you're? Oh yeah, screaming Sean. How are you doing, screaming Sean? Uh, how am I doing? How I'm kind doing? of exhausted, Jimmy G. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm exhausted, screaming Sean. <laughs> to answer your original question, we are exhausted. We are exhausted. It's just because we are just such busy people. You know, we're we're always busy going. You know, here, there, here, there, whatever. You know, doing. You know, always, always busy. Just keep them busy. It's called a job. I mean, really, do I really need a roof over my head? It's called a job. It's called kids. It's called well for you. Called for me, it's called dog and well complaining uh, mother-in-law. You know, the usual. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. The usual. So, hey, uh, Sean. Screaming hey. Sean. I'm going to have to remember. I, I'm, I'm going to write that down. Screaming Sean. Okay. And then you're going to throw it away. Uh, exactly. You'll be glad you did. Ten points to the person that guesses which episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 I got that whole shebang from. But, you know, the end of it probably gave it away. Are there any addenda and the errata? I have a couple addenda, and um, it's kind of awkward to say this, but... Oh, yeah, very awkward. All right, let me try something else. Uh, it's... Uh, it pains me to have to say this, but I have some addenda for last week's episode, particularly Pack Land. And given that we had, what, four hours dedicated to Pack Land and five minutes dedicated to the real Ghostbusters? So here we are making yet something even more um, large than it should have been. Hold on a second. I'm hunkering down. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Are you, you're all hunkered. I am hunkered. Hopefully our listeners are too. So anyway, my first, uh, first addendum, I forgot to mention something that I really, really love about Pac-Land. You know what happens when you get a really high score, or at least high enough? Angels cry. Angels cry. And you know why they cry? They are tears of joy because you get to enter some letters to tell people who you were. Most games allow you three letters. Mm-hmm. Pac-Land allows you five characters. Uh-huh. And one of the characters is, like, icons from the game, too. So, oh, no kidding. Like, you can actually put a ghost monster as a character. Oh, now that's neat. Bec- yeah. Because I was going to say the uh, the record for number of letters they give you is on the game Stargate. They give you 20 then they give you three initials. Now, I think they carry that over to Sinistar as well. 
Huh. I have to double check that. I'm I am 100% certain about the Stargate one. I'm not 100% certain about uh, Sinistar, but I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, it's a kind of who cares thing. Well, I care because I'm sick of putting three letters. I mean, three letters, that's, uh, well, assuming you're only counting A through Z, which I know most of these games have more than just A through Z, that's 26 cubed different possible combinations. And you're trying to come up with something that's memorable and that someone else doesn't really have. Well, with five letters, I can actually put D-A-U-B-R. Wow. So, hey, if you see that on a pack land, that's probably my score. I usually just put Jim in. That's unique. No one else will probably be able to claim that name. For some reason, back in the Ferg, I uh, would put in J-H-G, even though my middle initial is not an H. And to this day, I don't remember why I did that. As long as we're on the topic of entering initials... What is it with games that have four-way joysticks, but on the enter your initials screen, it only lets you go left and right? I know. Nintendo and Sega are notorious for that. Mm. I'm trying to remember what game... There, there, there is a core game that does allow you to move in all four directions, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, one of the neat things, some of the shooting games will allow you to actually take the gun and shoot you know, the initials, uh, Atari's Firefox does that. But they also have, the, the most unique uh, thing when it comes to entering your initials is Atari's Quantum. It's That is an awesome game that we should get to someday. Uh, I've already let my uh, opinion on it be known. But uh, at the end of the game, if you get on the high score table, you use the trackball and your cursor and you circle your initials. And if you get the top high score, you circle your initials, plus you get an area of the screen to, to write your name in with the trackball. Oh, awesome. So on, uh, on MAME, I'm having a good time writing my name in cursive on that game. It's a, that's a fun, fun game we, should, we definitely should get to. Um, only problem is it works best with a trackball. But You know what really burned me? Yeah, I was at Galloping Ghost Arcade on uh, Sunday, um, essentially there to play the two games we're going to talk about today. But I also played Food Fight. Mm-hmm. I love me the Food Fight. That love is an me some awesome food game. Fight too. The Atari 7800 is the best home version. There's only a handful of home versions. Well, there's only, what, what two home versions of Yeah, it? the Atari 8-bit home version of that game isn't anywhere near as good as the 7800 version. It's the 7800's killer app, let's put it that way. But what killed me was... The 16-way joystick on that thing, and when you enter your initials on there, when Chuck basically throws a constant stream of food at all the letters, you hit the throw button to pick a letter. My initials ended. I couldn't find my score because I was going to take a, I was going to submit my score for Orcade.com, which I did. But I couldn't find it after. I was like, where the heck is it? My, I mentioned my friend Duke a couple of times on this show. He was there that day, too. He was watching me play. And I said, where's my score? He said, you entered DCR, so it's under D. I was like, ah! <laughs> I couldn't get the D. Learn. You know? That is, I, for as great a game as that one is, uh, the, the, the uh, letter selection on the high score screen is a little awkward. Yeah. That's the only, but you know what, we're not reviewing that game. No, I can't wait till we do, though. Man, that's a, I love that game, so that's one of my all-time favorites. Oh, gosh. I've played it like four times in my life, and it's still one of my all-time favorites. But we're going to get to that game. I could yeah. go on and on about it. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, so, do we have any more Addenda and Arata? I have a Addendum, another one for Pac-Land. 
Now, it, one four pack land. Something I that I bump, really bump. am going to try to get in the habit of doing is actually putting some effort into this podcast and actually doing some research before I talk. Dun dun dun. Because I watched a video on YouTube of somebody playing Pack Land, and there was something that I never knew existed. I think it's uh, when you're heading back left to go back mm. home. If you move one of the fire hydrants, a big like burst of balloons comes flying out of them, and, and any balloons you grab, it looks like you get some random points, like up to like huh. 1,500 points or something. And I was like, whoa, how'd that happen? And I've not been able to duplicate that. Interesting. I will have to experiment with that. Another addendum. Um, I had mentioned before about how, let's say you're in the portion of the trip in which the ghost monsters are dropping bombs on you, the little ghost monster bombs. If you eat a power pellet during that time, the ghost monster bombs also turn purple, just like the ghost monsters, and they're worth whatever the equivalent ghost monster eating points is. And I had wondered aloud, what if you get all five of the ghost monsters plus at least one ghost monster bomb? I found out what happens. Unfortunately, not personally, just from watching that video. Like, let's say you get all five ghost monsters. You know, that's 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200. And let's say you get a ghost monster bomb. The mm -hmm. next one up is 7,650. So it's like, man, if you can get if you can get like six of those things, man, you're you're gonna be quite happy. You're golden. And I have an erratum also for Packland. I had said that once you get the little helmet to protect you from the ghost monster bombs, that's it for the rest of the game. That is not true. Um, mm -hmm. If you survive to, uh, I, there are some later trips, if you last that long, which I usually don't, uh, in which you can get another helmet by pushing the fire hydrant back. Hmm. So that's um, all I have for addenda and errata. Well, I shouldn't say errata. It was just one erratum. Uh, do you have any addenda or errata? Well, we were wondering aloud about uh, what happened with uh, Data East's intellectual properties. Their, uh, you know, um, their uh, their games, their titles. You know, the stuff that they owned after they went bankrupt. The Wikipedia article is interesting. Unable to escape their mounting financial problems, Data East filed for reorg in 1999 and resumed making video games. For the following three and a half years, Data East sold. What did they sell? Had nothing to do with video games. They sold pies. Close. They sold negative ion generators. That's almost pies. That was so close. Almost pies. 3.14. And licensed some of their old games to other companies. All of this in hopes of collecting enough money to be able to make video games again and return to the competition. Nonetheless, the company's restructuring efforts were not enough to put the financial problems, put put, put back the financial problems brought by the 90s. And in April 2003, they filed for bankruptcy and were de finally declared bankrupt by a Tokyo district court on June 25, 2003. Most of intellectual properties were acquired in Feb 2000. 2004 by G-Mode, a Japanese mobile game content provider, which explains how I was playing Burger Time on my phone a while back. Uh, however, some of Data East's assets, including Karnov, Chelnov, uh, I always thought Chelnov, uh, when I first heard of it, was a, good, a sequel to Karnov, but sadly no. Uh, the Vapor Trail Trilogy, whatever the hell that is, and Glory of Heracles. Who's that man and he's got Big Peck's his name is? Shaft. <laughs> are owned by Payon Corporation instead of G-Mode. Likewise, G-Mode does not own the rights to the Metal Max series and Tante Jingu Jinguji Saburo series, which is was in every arcade in the United States. 
Though they were retained by Kreatech and WorkJam, respectively. Okay, the game Tante Jinguju Saburo was retained by WorkJam. Come on, you're boring our listeners with things they already knew inside and out. Well, I'm so sorry. Ownership rights are unknown for some of the Deco cassette games, as well as for games that were created from licensed properties, such as the Robocop games and Captain America and the Avengers. And in Sept 2009, Majesco Entertainment has announced it would release a collection of arcade games from Data East called Data East Arcade Classics for the Wii console under license from G-Mood. Yo, what up, G-Dog? Yo. That is the addenda. Actually, I have one more. Also for Pac-Land. Uh, gee, there's a shocker. Isn't it shocking? But you had mentioned before about your troubles with the springboard and jumping that really super long distance. And I said, oh, you just keep hitting the, the right button. Mm-hmm. Well, that is absolutely true, unless you're playing it in MAME. Really? Yeah. For some reason, when I get to that board in MAME... Sometimes Pac-Man will not jump when he gets off that board. Sometimes he'll get airborne, but suddenly he'll drop like five feet every three seconds. No kidding. I was like, what? On the on the on the arcade game, it's fine. Like the real arcade cabinet, it works. But for some reason, maimed. Uh, I don't know. What the hell? Damn it, Sean! That game's not right. Gosh, that is my worst Hank Hill impersonation. Uh, okay. So, do we have any more addenda and errata, or is that pretty much it? All right, you know what? I think we better call an end to it before I come up with more stuff about Pac-Land. Yeah, so you don't want to be some some butthole and uh, make this segment go on longer than it need be. So, we should probably talk about a game. You choose. All right, last week we talked about the second one first, so let's talk about the first one first this week. Okay, and what is the first one? Uh, the first one... God, I'm too tired to say polysyllabic words, so I'm just going to say joust. Ah, joust. All righty. Well, I think we said everything we need to say about Joust. Yay! So, <laughs> no, Joust, it's fun, fun game. Uh, the, the plot of the game is it's some sort of weird medieval fantasy era where you're on an ostrich and there are other little bad guys on buzzards. Yes, prepare to Joust buzzard bait. In fact, Buzzard Bait was um, kind of a working title of this podcast we were toying around with before Indeed we started. Indeed it was, and that was the front runner for the longest time, actually. But we settled on Pie Factory. So you got this, this you're out sitting on this ostrich, and you got to knock the other people off of their buzzards. Uh, it's two players at the same time. I believe that the player two is on a stork. I believe that is correct. It could be a one-player yeah. game too. You don't have to have. You don't have to play True. with somebody. I, I've mostly played this game one player, but this game is a lot of fun with two players. The controls: you have a joystick. They move left and right, and you got a button that says flap. So each time you hit it, the wings on your bird flap once, and you go up a little bit, and that's your control system. And I was reading a little bit up about Joust and. Um, they, the reason they designed it like that and with and not with a four-way joystick was because they thought that having the flap button would get people more invested in the character that you're playing on screen. And I would ha- and I have to say that they are right. You know, you really actually control the movements more so than if you were just to move the joystick around. And let's be honest, if you're all you were doing is moving a joystick around in all four directions, the game would have probably been a lot less fun than it is. And too easy too. 
and too, too easy. There are three different enemies in this game. Well, there is a fourth one, but we'll get to that in a moment. And they're all on the buzzards. The, uh, the lowest level person you're jousting against is the bounder. Next level up is the hunter. And then the highest level is the shadow lord. The way that you knock them off of their buzzard is you are holding a lance and they are holding a lance and all you have to do is collide with them as long as your lance is above theirs. If it touches their lance, then you both bounce off each other. If your lance is lower, you get knocked off of your ostrich and you'll lose a life. If you take too long to complete a level, a pterodactyl comes out. This is a kind of a very, very weird, <laughs> kind of a very weird medieval fantasy here. And the, in the attract mode, it says indestructible with a question mark pterodactyl, but you can destroy it. You just have to get a direct shot in the mouth with your lance. I have never been able to intentionally destroy that thing. I have, actually. Unintentionally, I have. And I believe in the original version of the game, the uh, pterodactyl was originally supposed to be indestructible, but uh, for some reason they put it in as it was to so that you could destroy it. The playfield is really beautiful, I think. Uh, it's not a horribly colorful game, but what colors are in it are used to great effect. Uh, you got several ledges hanging in the air, and then you got a big base one at the bottom, which on it shows your score and the number of lives you have, as well as your your uh, second player, if you're playing two-player. And um, to the left and right of this big ledge, there is a lake of lava. Now, there is a bridge going across the lake of lava on the first level, but after the first level, it melts away. So anything falling into the lake of lava is dead. If you or an opponent gets too close to the lake of lava, there will be a hand coming out of the lake to try. To I love in. that thing. That is a great effect. Oh, that is that is a that is a nice kind of almost little humorous touch in the game. And you can escape um, from that hand if you're lucky enough. In the early levels, it's pretty easy, but the more you play, the harder it gets. One thing I did forget to mention: when you knock the uh, one of the bad guys off of their buzzards it lays an egg. One of a couple of things can happen to that egg. It'll either fall all the way down into the lava, which it's destroyed, you're done with. Or it'll land on a uh, one of the platforms. If it lands on a platform, you can go run over it and you'll get some bonus points. I think it's kind of a random bonus point. You have to get it because if you don't get it in time, you only have, you have a little bit of time before it hatches a new rider and then a buzzard will come out and he will get back on, this time at a harder level opponent. So if it's a bounder that you killed, his egg will hatch a hunter. If you, ha if you uh, knock the hunter off, his egg will hatch a shadow lord. Which, it's interesting that the eggs are hatching humans and not the buzzards. Never thought about that before. Hmm. If you get them after they hatch, it still takes a moment or two for the buzzard to come out to get them. So you can still attack them just by running into them. And you'll automatically kill them that way. So, and you get, I think, a few extra points for that. I think you get a thousand for that. Now, after you collide with one of the enemies, if you can catch the egg in midair, I believe it's an additional, it's either 250 or 500 points that you get in addition to the normal points that you get for picking up the egg. So you, there's uh, plenty of scoring opportunities. Uh, there are some special waves in this game. You get the normal gameplay waves where you're just going against the other guys. Then you get a egg wave, which they're just eggs on all the platforms. All you got to do is pick them all up before they hatch and 
the bad guys get on their buzzards. Then if they get on their buzzards, then it's just a normal game. Uh, it's kind of a bonus round. You know, kind of a bonus round. It's got that little bit of timing element without having a timer. Then you have survival wave, which if you can make it through the wave, you get uh, bonus points, which I believe are 5,000. And I'm just going off of this off of memory, even though I did just play this just before we started recording. And then if you are playing two players, you get... Um, Oh, gosh, what are the waves called? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I believe there's a... You know what? For that, I'm going to go to the Arcade Museum. Oh, uh, a mistake I made. It's not the indestructible pterodactyl. It's the unbeatable pterodactyl. Oh, well, that changes things. Yes. Okay, now... Now, you do know that in the original Joust Rum, the pterodactyl was not only beatable... But also, there was a point-pressing maneuver you could do. I can't quite explain it, where you could just stay on one of the platforms and just sit there and just destroy pterodactyls constantly at, like, every few seconds and, like, run your score up like crazy. They eventually fixed that in the later rounds. Oh, I remember the uh, the wave names. Okay. If you're playing a two-player, there's two additional wave names. One is the gladiator wave, where you get bonus points for killing the other player which is kind of evil. I think it's like 5,000 points. <laughs> and then there's a, a cooperative wave where you get bonus points if you don't hit each other. So that adds a nice little uh, <laughs> nice little bit of uh, evil and goodwill toward in the game. And um, all in all, it's a fun game. Uh, I love Joust. Joust is it's a classic for good reason. It was ported to pretty much every classic console, I believe. I don't know if it was on the ColecoVision. I'm using a special... Uh, source called Walmart PD, uh, sorry, Wikipedia, and it says here previously unreleased Atari Soft prototypes of Joust for the ColecoVision surfaced in 2001 at Classic Gaming Expo in Vegas. I did not know that. An adaptation with three-dimensional, or 3D, thank you for clarifying that, whoever put this entry in here, I didn't know that's what that meant, uh, 3D graphics was in development for the Atari Jaguar CD. Titled Dactyl Joust, it was eventually cancelled. You know, it was on all the Atari systems, I do know that, and then of course the various collections over the years. It's really good. It's really good on every Atari platform. Obviously, the 2600 can't capture the visuals because this does have some pretty nice visuals. The visuals are amazing. Indeed. Uh, but the Atari 2600 does good with what it's got. The uh, 5200 slash 8-bit computer version is pretty good. The only, uh, the only thing with that is it's only got single-colored sprites, which unfortunately is a hallmark of the 8-bit computer series. But the Atari 7800 version really shines. It's got the multicolored sprites, and the, the backgrounds are arcade-perfect. And I do believe, however, the only graphical flaw with the 7800 version is the hand that tries to pull you into the lake of lava isn't as detailed as it is in the arcade. Of course, I could be thinking of the Atari 8-bit version, but uh, which is still a good version. Something peculiar about the 2600 version. Sometime earlier this year on the, uh, on the Atari Age 2600 High Score Club, the uh, Atari 2600 Joust was the featured game, mm -hmm. and at least I believe the the uh, game variation they wanted to they they wanted us to play was the default one. Just turn the cartridge on, and hit reset. Uh -huh. Now, at least with that variation, I haven't really played the other ones, but that variation. What's odd is that the eggs go flying upward instead of and down and landing on a platform. They just keep kind of going up and diagonal. It's as if they're being tossed and they never land. 
they don't ever really land on uh, the platforms in the 2600 version, do they? Because I think they're just using the same movements that the actual jousters use. And there was a version, it was a public domain version of Joust, not an official version of Joust, but someone's uh, own version that was on the Amiga, and I had that mm-hmm. version for a while. It was awesome. It was called Jouster. It was really, oh, yes. really good. Yes, I believe you, uh, you've told me about this before. There's a, a couple of interesting things in this game. Uh, like I was saying, you get it's got that main platform on the bottom, but then it's got one, two, three, it's actually got seven floating platforms. The only thing is, is that one is on the, well, they wrap around the screen. So should we just say there's two, three, four, five platforms then? Let's say there's five platforms and two of them wrap around the side of the screen. That's right. If you, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, if you fly off the side of the screen, you'll reappear on the other side. So one of the platforms on the lower right is uh, it's actually kind of split. There's part of it uh, just slightly above the other. And if you're flying just right, you, you can, if you're moving fast left or right in your flap and you hit the top of a platform, you'll uh, start uh, bouncing off the top. You'll start bouncing on the platform. If you go off the left-hand side onto the right and you hit the gap between these two platforms, you'll just, you'll go right through it. And uh, you're not supposed to do that, I don't believe. So that is a bug and not an undocumented feature. It is a bug. Indeed it is. And there was an arcade sequel to Joust, Joust 2 Survival of the Fittest, which in this one you're riding your, uh, your ostrich or your... Uh, or your uh, stork. But there's also, a, in addition to the flap button, there is a transform button, which allows you to transform into a Pegasus. Very, very few of these were actually in the arcade. In fact, I'm not a huge fan of it. Every screen is a different screen, and they got different little features in it. I've played it a few times. It's on MAME, so if you... We need to do a, really do a show about how to set MAME up so people can uh, play a lot of these games at home again. But... It's not the f- most fun game, um, Joust 2. It's worth it to play, you know, as a curiosity. I could take it or leave it. They did not release very many uh, copies of it at all. Arcade.com lists um, 11 locations in the world that have it. You can probably guess what two of them are. Galloping Ghost? And? Fun Spot? Fun Spot. I did not know Galloping Ghost had it. Yeah, neither did I, and I was just, I was just there on Sunday. Ah, here we are. The original Joust shipped like 25,000 units, thereabouts. Joust 2 only shipped 1,000. Oh, wow. And they blame the poor numbers to an industry slump in the mid-80s. I don't agree. I noted on one of the old... PC collections of Williams' classic arcade games, which Joust was on. They also had some interviews with the uh, with the people who made the games. The one of the creators of the game was talking about how he has actually written a script for a Joust movie. I think I heard that. And I'm just kind of wondering what you would do with that. The concept is actually, I think, would actually not make a bad film. And then in this day of CGI, I think you could do it. It's not like the uh, Asteroids movie that, uh, that they're working on, which, dear God, dear God, take me now. I thought that was a joke. I, I honestly thought that was a joke. Guess it isn't. Tell you what, if that thing does come out, I'm going to make a Professor Pac-Man movie. You might as well. By the way, you know what, el- what else was in the arcades, uh, Joust-related? There was a Joust pinball machine. There was a Joust pinball machine. Which... Sadly, I don't have the uh, pin mame going. I still, to this day, cannot figure out how to get it working. I have so, not tried that yet. 
I've tried, because I want to get the Terminator 2 Judgment Day pinball machine going, which, as much as you hated the, uh, uh, the arcade game, I think you would really, really enjoy the pinball. The, um... There was, a, I forget, didn't mention there was a, a version of the game also available on the Apple II, Apple II and the Macintosh. Uh, Tiger Electronics released a small LCD keychain version of the game in 98. A mobile phone version was released in 05, omitted the flapping control scheme, which I don't know if you really could call it joust. And um, there was a, um, there was an interesting game that somebody homebrewed for the Atari 2600. It was originally called Joust Pong. It was Pong, right. except that you had to keep, it had the uh, the Joust mechanism where you had to keep hitting the button to go up, and the second you stop hitting, it starts going back down. And uh, I thought that was interesting, but they got, into, they had, got a cease and desist letter, I believe, and uh, they renamed the game to Flap Ping. Right! That's, okay, that's what that was. Yeah. Yes. So, I have not played that one. I want to play that uh, Joust Pong, because that sounds like it's an f- interesting concept. Yeah, interesting twist on an old game. Yeah, and of course, well, my thought is that, was Joust perhaps uh, the influence behind Flappy Bird? Mm-hmm. Actually, I think we're traipsing. Or I think we're traipsing into no quarter podcast territory because I think they talked about that too when they talked about Joust. Uh, maybe, but you know what? I'm just. I mentioned that they had written the script. Uh, Wikipedia says Midway Games optioned Joust's movie rights to CP Productions in in 2007. Michael Crescenzi and Christine Peters of CP Productions plan to expand on a game element for the film's premise. Crescenzi described the script by Mark Gottlieb uh, as Gladiator meets. Mad Max, set 25 years in the future, and Peters commented that the action-oriented film would appeal to a general audience. It was planned as a tentpole movie with a graphic novel by Stephen Elliott Altman as part of the media franchise's release. Midway Games also considered a video game adaptation of the film. Joust's expected release date was set in June 2008 and then later pushed back to 2009. The video game company, however, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2009. Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment purchased most of Midway's assets, including Joust, with the intent to develop a movie adaptation. So, that's where we stand on the movie. So, kind of all over the place there. You know what thought just crossed my mind? I'm not Kreskin. That did just cross my mind that you're not Kreskin. So, yeah, good job. But you know what else is coming coming into my mind? I really think that half the stuff we see on Wikipedia is total garbage. My philosophy is that people know that we tend to use Wikipedia as a crutch, so they go in and modify the uh, the entries. They're going to say, listen to these guys. They're falling for the whole script thing. <laughs> well played. It has been it has been confirmed on a version of the game from the 90s. So, eh, eh, eh. So, uh, Sean, did you get a chance to play Joust at all? You know, honestly, even though I went to Galloping Ghost just to play Joust in our other game, I ended up not playing Joust at all. I got kind of sidetracked by a bunch of other things, but I have played a lot of Joust, um, actually fairly recently. One other home variation we uh, probably should mention is um, there was a Williams collection that was on the Sega Genesis. 
Somebody I know from somewhere told me about how a certain uh, major drugstore chain out of Deerfield, Illinois, was selling uh, these handheld Genesis units for like 50% off. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, during my commutes to work, you know, I usually take mass transit if I don't take my bike. I play myself a lot of joust in that thing. And I also play it on the Williams collection, or actually the Midway collection on uh, my iPhone a lot, too. I don't know if I've tried that on my uh, little Genesis handheld. It's really, it, it's, I mean, well, it's basically the arcade game emulated, but it's really, really good. I will have to try that. Because as you probably, uh, as our as our listeners probably uh, guessed, uh, I think we, it's safe to say we both rate this a five-star game. It's this is easily this, five. This is easily one of the top classic games. It's up there with the Pac-Man series, Donkey Kong, uh, Tempest, and uh, you know all of those uh, all of those games. It's easily got its own little place. And in fact, if you really think about it, pretty much most of Williams Electronics titles are you know are generally considered classics. Oh yeah. For reason. Williams really didn't make very many bad games, and the games that were considered bad were still pretty good. I mentioned this gentleman in our last episode. His name is Matt Burke. He's probably the most frequent customer at uh, Underground Retrocade. He's there almost every time I'm there, and I, I think he lives really close there, so he gets, he gets to go a lot. But he runs a uh, Facebook page. He calls it Matt Burke's Schmups and Stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of uses it as his own blog, really. It's basically he just shares his thoughts uh, every couple of days or so. And I actually commented in there as like I said what is it about Joust that makes it so awesome I mean everybody knows it's an awesome game well he disagreed with me he he said it's a terrible game but I think he's biased because it's a very difficult game, and he doesn't really like difficult games, I don't think. Um, if he's hearing this, he wants to uh, chime in and say, uh, no, that's not what I said. I certainly invite him yeah, to have equal time. But, And that's something that is very true about most, if not all, Williams games I've found. They're very difficult. I mean, to this day, like I, can, it, I once got a five-digit score on Defender. You know, you know, Robotron is, is kind of hard. Joust is hard. Sinistar is hard. Sinistar, the arcade version of Sinistar is horribly hard. But what uh, people don't realize is when they showed that game at uh, one of the consumer electronics shows, the arcade Sinistar, they did not release that version because people at that show thought it was too hard. Wow. So they dumbed it down. Oh, and it's still wow. A horribly difficult game. In fact, they you can uh, if you have Mame, you can actually get the ROM for the version of Sinistar that they showed at the arcade show. Wow. So yeah, that's a hard game, but it's one I keep coming back to because I'm a masochist, or is it a sadist? I'm weird. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, it's, you so, keep coming back to it because it's weird. And the, and that that to me, that does not in any way detract from the the greatness of these games. Joust is difficult. I mean, I've I've been playing this for a long time, and I still can't get past forty thousand points. However, I do find myself kind of improving and learning new strategies uh, as I go on. I scored this afternoon forty-seven thousand one hundred. Oh, actually, you know what? Let me see what my uh, record is so far. Uh, forty-five thousand eight hundred fifty. I still beat you. Forty-seven thousand one hundred. Ah, curses! But 
Listen to Heat, who beat both of us. According to Orcade.com, on September 14th, 2011 at Galloping Ghost, Lonnie McDonald scored 10,016,250. Um, at Richie Knuckles, during the first ever Richie Knuckles Arcade Marathon in De- on December 11th, 2010, I'm guessing that's in Flemington, New Jersey, the two-player variation, 745,000 scored by Steve Sanders and Isaiah Sanders. And speaking Speaking of Steve Sanders, uh, that name might be familiar to diehard arcade fans because he was a uh, high score king way back in the 80s and he's in the Chasing Ghosts movie. He's in uh, uh, King of Kong. But something that I, I remember, he, I think Steve was the one who was talking about Joust in uh, Chasing Ghosts. If it wasn't him, it was somebody else, but they were talking about how his strategy for flapping was to use his index finger and middle finger and just tap them really fast back and forth. I can't do that because, man, if I flap too fast, I lose control. I cannot control my uh, I cannot control my ostrich going that fast. Yeah, and you got to watch out because if you hit uh, if you hit the the top of the of the of the play area or the underside yeah. of one of the platforms, uh, you could go off sailing in any sort of different direction. So yeah, the control is the key yeah. for this game. And you know what? One ripoff of Joust that I neglected to mention, there was a game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. First of all, Joust was ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System, which I totally forgot. But there was also a game that Nintendo put out. I believe it was one of the launch titles called Balloon Fight which was the same game. The only difference was, instead of riding an ostrich, you were blowing it, you had balloons that you blew up, and every time someone hit you, they popped a balloon. And after they popped two of your balloons, you died. Huh. Um, another high score track listed on Arcade says points ACS. I don't know what ACS means. I, don't, I never saw it on the site. Where, like, this, but anyway, whatever that means, it's uh, it was performed at Fun Spot on May 29th, 2000, by Mark Longridge, 648,000. Uh-huh. And finally, it just says points performed at Midwest Gaming Classic 2012, March 24th. Ryan Barringer with 212,750. And according to Twin Galaxies, which also lists multiple tracks and actually this might give, give us some uh insight as to what all this crap means for single player marathon john p McAllister, december 9th 2010 107,301,150 jeez i've yet to score a million in any arcade game okay they also repeat the steve sanders and isaiah sanders except here they show it at 881,250 done november 18th 2012 joust tournament tournament settings single player Donald Hayes, November 22nd, 2008, 1,489,250. There you go. And that uh, is that. And that is the rest of the story. Good day. But uh, so, so, yeah, five out of five continues from both of us, I believe. Indeed. And something interesting here at the, uh, the end of the Wikipedia article, it was talking about how the game Mario Brothers borrows certain elements from Joust. So let's talk about Mario Brothers. Mario Bros. okay. Now, we're not talking about Super Mario Brothers, which is the sequel to Mario Brothers. We are talking about Mario Brothers, which came out first. Now, the premise is that Mario and Luigi are basically trying to clean up a sewer. While they're in Detroit, little animals will come out of these pipes at the top of the screen and 
to get rid of them, they have to jump up from the platform beneath the enemy, and that flips them over. And then they have to jump up to the platform the enemy is on and kick them off. And once they get kicked off from the pipes at the top of the screen, a little coin will come out and you can either pick it up or jump up beneath it like you were doing with the enemies. Uh, there are several different enemies. The first enemy is called the Shell Creeper, and it's just, just a turtle. Uh, the second enemy is called the Sidestepper. It's a crab. Kind of almost looks a little bit like Mr. Krabs uh, from Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. And uh, he has to be hit twice. The first time you jump up underneath him, he flies back and then he speeds up. Then the second time he flips over. Then the third enemy is a fighter fly. It bounces on the platform and you can only jump up underneath it once it touches a platform. Otherwise, it won't flip over. And uh, the last one is called a slip ice. Uh, a slip ice comes out of the platform or it comes out of the, the, the pipes at the top like you know all the other enemies. And then once it gets down to a platform, it'll melt and freeze the platform form and you will slip. One of the things with this game is that the control, when you uh, push the other direction, there's some momentum going. And if that platform is frozen, you're going to be going a little further. So you want to want to watch those. The thing with the slip ice is uh, once again, you can jump up underneath it from the platform below, but you don't have to kick it off. If you jump up underneath it, if you get it before it melts, it'll just you, you killed it. You don't have to go up and kick it off again, so that's easy. But there's a couple of other um, interesting things here. First of all, if you jump up underneath one of the enemies, it'll flip over. If you don't get up to it in time to kick it off, it will flip back over the right way. It's actually got a cute animation with the shell creeper. He oh, I love it. out of his shell, and then he looks at it, and he's sitting there in his, in his boxer shorts and, uh, and one of those uh, sleeveless uh, T-shirts, and then he flips the shell back over and gets back in. That animation is so hilarious. It reminded me of the tortoise in the uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Yep, yep. <laughs> Hello. I was almost going into a Davy and Goliath voice there, even though I wasn't meaning to. So you want to get up there and knock them off. That's not what makes them go faster. What makes them go faster is if they wrap around. Like they go down to all the levels and then they go back to the top. That's when they get faster. If they, fl if they flip themselves back over, they're the regular speed. Are you sure about that? Yes. I could have sworn if they yes. flip back over... I will have to double check that. Now, there are pipes at the bottom of the screen. If an enemy gets down there, it'll just wrap back up to the top and keep coming out. Uh, the last enemy speeds up. If you, after you've killed all the rest of them, the last enemy will speed up. It'll change color. It'll change color, then speed up, actually. You have another enemy, actually two more enemies, a red fireball and a green fireball. Now, I'm not quite certain when, uh, when they come out. Um, I believe the green fireballs come out Actually, I'm not quite sure. I'll have to play it again. I was playing it beforehand here, but you have red and green fireballs that come out, and uh, one touch from them, and you're dead. One touch from really anything except from the coins, and you're dead. Yeah. Um, at the bottom of the screen, you have a POW button, and you can jump up, jump up under it three times. If you jump up under it, it will turn all the shell creepers upside down. It'll make all the uh, sidesteppers speed up. And if a fighter fly was touching the platform when you hit that, it will flip over. If it wasn't, if it was in the air, it has no effect. So use them judicious, judiciously. And 
You can also actually jump on top of the POW button as long as it's there. Just a little hint there, it'll help you. Since none of the enemies can get there, you can actually use that as kind of a place to like rest for a moment until a fireball comes to get you. Uh, you oh yeah, you can kill the, did I mention you can kill the fireballs if they touch the platform and you jump up underneath from the platform below. I was gonna ask about that because when I was playing this, I played a lot of this on Sunday, I could not do that. It wouldn't die, and I could have sworn I remember doing it at some point. It might have been the 7800 version. Well, I know you can do it on the 2600 version, and you can definitely do it on the uh, on the arcade version. I think it's just harder on the arcade version. Now, we were mentioning that Mario Brothers borrowed, a, borrowed some elements from Joust, and I was thinking about it, and it's borrowed quite a few elements from Joust. Now, the gameplay is totally different. However, it borrowed the control scheme with a two-way joystick and a control button. In Joust, it was a, a, what they call a flap button. In this one, it's a jump button. The layout of the platforms are eerily similar to that of uh, Joust. Uh, the only real difference is, is that there's not a third platform on the top level in between the two platforms on the side, like there is in Joust. It also borrows a bonus round. In Joust, it's the egg wave, where you gotta pick up all the eggs. In this one, it's a coin wave. Aha! Uh -huh. Yes, and uh, you have, I think it's 10 coins that you have to pick up, and you got like 10 seconds to, or 20 seconds to get them in. Uh, I think the time goes down, and I don't know how you can make that actually harder, unlike the egg wave on uh, Joust, which, you know, placing of the eggs can make it a bit of a challenge. So I haven't actually ever gotten to a second coin bonus screen on Mario Brothers, but um, I'm sure there's another uh, bonus. In my experience, that coin screen is actually pretty easy to clear. It is. And I find that the best strategy for that one is if you miss a coin, just keep going. Don't don't turn around for it. Just keep going the direction you're going. Once again, like Joust, if you go off the one side of the screen, you'll reappear on the other. And then just make your way, like, go up. You know, go left and up. And then once you get everything that way, go down and right. Or, I'm sorry, go left and down. You know, whatever direction you're going, go up, get everything, and then if you miss something, then you go down. That way you're not turning around. You waste time if you skid and turn around and try to get the other coins. Speaking of skid, did you talk about the um, game mechanics here? The uh... Well, I briefly mentioned with, with the, the slip ice where there's some momentum if you... Uh, if you're going in one direction and then you move Luigi or Mario in the other direction where he'll skid briefly and then you can keep going the other way. And you do build up momentum the longer you hold your controller in a direction. You don't want to go too fast in this game because it can get the levels can get pretty dang crowded and you next thing you know you'll be uh, you'll be uh, headed right into a fireball. And you don't want to do that. No. Not at all. Well, I always and, thought uh, that was a very creative you know, mechanic they put in there how you know Mario and Luigi they don't just stop you know there's that inertia going on like to simulate the slimy underworld I guess of well, the it sewer. Is a sewer it is yeah. a sewer and then once the sewer gets frozen that's not something I would rent want to be at in a real frozen sewer I would uh, want you know, to be in a sewer adds, period well I have lived in Kankakee but um, I've lived in Bourbon A well, there we go so there's the added mechanic of the uh, the slip ice melting and you know let me I'm gonna talk about the graphics on this for a moment I've noticed something with at least the first half of the Mario game era first of all Mario Brothers introduces Luigi to the whole Donkey Kong Mario world.
world. This is the first appearance of Luigi in a video game. Uh, and I noticed that the first half of the Donkey Kong, or the, uh, the Mario era of Nintendo, Mario looks different in each, pretty much each game. Uh, with the exception of, there's yet the series. You got Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Mario Brothers, and then Super Mario Brothers. Mario looks the same in Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Super Mario Brothers, but he looks totally different in Mario Brothers. He's got more detail. If you've, uh, I don't yeah. know if you've noticed that. I've noticed I, that too. And I don't know if you've also noticed this, or if you've really thought about it. He is pretty much made out to be a carpenter in the, in really pretty much anything he does. This game, he's a plumber. Well, I think he is actually a plumber in uh, Donkey Kong Jr. now that I think about it, because there is a Mario's hideout screen which takes place in a sewer. But something that this does raise the question, I, I'm pretty sure there's a definitive answer, but of course uh, my limited research uh, hasn't turned it up, and by limited research I mean none, because I'm that much prepared for our show. <laughs> when Mario Brothers came out into the arcades, was it officially supposed to be that Mario was the same guy as Jumpman? I think so. Oh, one other uh, thing with uh, with Joust that I failed to mention. It's awesome. Well, there's that. But uh, there's it's two players at the same time as well. Right. And that's kind of a neat mechanic because if you jump up under Luigi, if you're playing Mario and jump up under Luigi or vice versa, uh, you'll send him flying back a little bit. Um, I don't think you could purposely kill each other in this game, but you can certainly like ram them into an enemy just by a well-placed jump. But So that's always a um, fun little uh, thing. I like these two-player games like this where you can actually go at it or work cooperatively. I'm going to talk about uh, the Atari 7800 again, because Mario Brothers was indeed ported to the Atari 7800. It was also ported to the 2600, which once again was a good version. Yep. But uh, the uh, 7800 version, once again, two-player cooperative, as is Joust. But even games on the 7800 that weren't two-player cooperative in the arcade, they made two-player cooperative like Centipede and Asteroids, which brought a whole new level of gameplay to those particular games. And so I think Atari was actually on the right track with that. It's just too bad that some of the other games that they had in their lineup, like Food Fight, would have been an awesome one, two players at the oh. same time. Or, uh, it, you know, it would have fit in with the revenge mechanic really, really well. You know, the cooperative or the revenge mechanic in some of these other uh, some of these other games, because the Asteroids and the Centipede, there is a cooperative and a uh, competitive mode on all on those as well. It wouldn't have worked, I say, like on Xevious, but uh, you know what, though, they might not have. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, because uh, Food Fight was an Atari game, that would have been a fun one to uh, to do two people at the same time. So, if anybody's listening out there, that would be a great hack. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh man. Oh goodness, allergies. So uh, there you go. This is really, a, really a fun game. The only real problem I have with it, I, I do kind of wish that the action was just a little bit faster. Then again, I think maybe it just starts out too slow and gets, apparently it gets faster, but you know, oh, yeah. I can't last very long in this game, as, although I can last very long in the 2600 version. Speaking of the 2600 version, think about the other Donkey Kong games. Donkey Kong on the 2600, Coleco. Donkey Kong Jr. on the 2600, Coleco. Mario Brothers on the 2600. 
Atari. Atari. Well, you know what the whole story with that was, is the best that I can remember. First of all, Coleco, when they were coming out with the ColecoVision, they went to Nintendo, they went to a game show to try to get licensed for arcade games, and they overpaid for Donkey Kong, and, uh... That got some people at Coleco really pissed, and then they also got the Donkey Kong Jr. one a little bit later. They had Donkey Kong, they might as well have Donkey Kong Jr. Then what happened was Atari had the home computer rights to the Donkey Kong series. So they could legally release Donkey Kong for their 8-bit and ST computer lineup. And they released two fantastic versions of Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. for their 8-bit lineup of computers. Well, a representative from Atari was at at the Consumer Electronics Show. This is the story the best I know it. I'm probably wrong on a few points. And saw that Coleco was displaying Donkey Kong, a special version, tape version of Donkey Kong on the Coleco Atom computer. Mm-hmm. Not the ColecoVision cartridge version, but a different version of Donkey Kong, which was really good. But an Atari got pissed. And what happened is that it caused a schism between Coleco and Nintendo, because I don't think Nintendo knew that Coleco was going to release a computer version of it. And so that severed the Coleco-Nintendo tie, and then Nintendo started licensing their games to whoever will take them. Uh, Parker Brothers got Sky Skipper, which I don't think was ever released in the United States, and Popeye. Mm-hmm. And uh, Atari got Mario Brothers. I want to think there was another game that Atari got from Nintendo, but I can't think of it. I could be wrong. could just be Mario Brothers. After that point, the licensed home titles were fragmented until Nintendo came out with its own consoles. And the rest is, as they say, history. So there's your story. The more you know. Page two. Any thoughts on the game? Any more thoughts? I don't know if I so much have any thoughts on it, but I do have one question. I don't remember if you had mentioned this. Is there a way to get the POW back once you used it up at any point during the game? No. I didn't think so. After you hit the POW three times, that's it. It's gone. So save it for emergencies for later in the game. And the interesting thing about the POW is it's an... it's specifically for that to be used in emergencies, but you have to get down to it, and you could get trapped on the way down. So you really, really got to plan out when you're going to use that. I would say don't use it in the early levels, but keep a path clear to it if you can at any, you know, if you can to uh, later on in the game when you really need it. Well, I don't know what you mean by early levels, but uh, I, I don't think I can make it any further than the second fighter fly level. I think that's about as far as I made it. Yeah, in fact, my high score on this is 42,060. Oh, Oh, yeah? What's your high score, bub? 42,100. Ah, but were you playing it on a real machine, or were you playing it in MAME? I was playing it on MAME. Ah, ha, ha, ha. See, you live closer to an arcade than I do, young man. It is true. Actually, I am older than you. That is true. By about seven years. Yep, yep. Speaking of which, it was interesting because, like, uh, when uh, uh, Underground Retrocade mentioned Pie Factory podcast on its homepage um, on the web, they said uh, new podcast by two childhood friends. It's like, well, uh, only one because I was seventeen when we met, and uh, I was a few months away from turning eighteen. So technically, I was legally still a child. So we were just—it was true. just one childhood friend, and I was corrupting your youth. Yeah. 
Of course, it probably was pretty corrupted by then anyway. So how many continues do you rate, Mario? Oh, actually, oh, shoot, you, you're actually hosting this one. Why don't you ask me? Well, just for that, I'm not going to. Okay, fine, then, I, then I'm going to say... I'll be that way. All right. Eh, eh, eh. No. How many continues would you re rate this, Sean? Well, first of all, I just want to say that this is yet another Nintendo game that forces me to play left-handed. I hate when people make me play left-handed. However, this is still, still a fun game. It's crazy fun. And this is how fun it was. Like when I was playing this on Sunday over Galloping Ghost, I was using some of the colorful language that I mentioned before a few episodes ago. And yet I still wanted to play more. I was like, ah, yes, not And so you were saying some butthole. Some butthole kept ruining my game. And it was called um, Fighter Flies and stuff. <laughs> I'm going to have. I'm going to have to say five continues. I really am. It's This is such a fun game. And the home versions are so good, too. Yeah. Um, and it's a very creative... It's very creative on so many levels. And, you, you know, we were talking about Burger Time a while back and how the Atari 2600 version of it was pretty bad and how the uh, some of the sprites, uh, they had to change the things, like the egg suddenly became a slice of cheese and it was like a square. And there was a breadstick yeah. because we all like putting... Breadsticks uh, on our burgers. The Atari version of Burger Time was just so bad that you're just picking everything apart. Now, the action and the play of Mario Brothers on the 2600 was so good that you didn't mind that the coins and the fireballs were all, or that the coins were squares. And you probably don't even notice it. I call them dollars. Ooh, there's a good idea. But am I right? I mean, you don't notice it because the game is overall so good that you're not nitpicking all of the little things. Oh, yeah, and you expect things to be of lesser quality. I mean, especially like Centipede and Millipede on the 2600 were very, very good, but everything was rectangles and squares. And I, So you I kind of expect also, that. With the, with the Centipede and Millipede on the 2600, they play better and smoother than the Atari 8-bit computer versions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I went there. Uh, uh, uh. Well, since you went there, I'm going elsewhere, like Arcade.com, which claims that Perry Rogers scored a million nineteen thousand eight hundred and seventy points May 29th, 2000 at Fun Spot. Oh, and may I say, excellent segue. No, you may not. Excellent segue. No, you may not say that. Well, I just did. <laughs> and uh, there's another track listed here, one of those ACS tracks. Again, I'm guessing one of these means tournament or, or, or marathon or something. Uh, Ross Benziger at the Kencade Hi, during BOTA, what's whatever that is, March, 12th, 2000, March 24th, 2012, scored 770,950. Now, and here's the crazy thing. You go over to Twin Galaxies, there are several tracks listed, but only a couple of them actually list scores. Um, for the two-player team mode, Boyer Kleisath, if that's how it's pronounced, uh, on January 16th, 2015, scored 1,186,000. 6,090. That's for the two-player team. Single-player. Yeah, it says two-player, but there's only one guy listed here. So I don't know what that's all about. Unless maybe he's doing like one of those little, ooh, I'm going to play both players. Because there are some games in which you, if you play both players, you can actually do some cheats on that. I don't know if that's what he was doing. <laughs> Single-player Stephen Kleisath, uh, January 10th, 2015 also. 5,424,920. Wow. I wonder how some of these people get that high. 
uh, get those high scores. I know how they get high, and I don't want any part to do with that. Just say no. But how do they get these scores? I, 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 do they have, like, a, a catheter, or do they have, like, a, a, a Pepsi can that they keep telling somebody to empty, hopefully in the toilet? I know there are some games in which you could build up so many lives you could literally take a nap for a while. I have heard about that. Oh, you know what? The whole Boyer Kleisat thing, that's actually two different guys. It's Stephen Boyer and Steve Kleisat. Ah, there we go. Because this is also listed listed as the no POW oh, challenge to player team. I just team. realized I didn't say how many uh, continues I give this game. I give it five continues. I will say that I, ho- I hope that somebody comes out with a speed up chip. I believe I can actually speed the game up in MAME, so I'm going to try to speed it up a little bit, see uh, if, how that affects the gameplay. Because I think this game could be sped up a little bit, like I said before. Ah. So the Boyer Kleisath team uh, scored 627,480 mm-hmm. on January 16th, 2015, the No POW Challenge. Mm-hmm. And those, yeah, there are like two more tracks here. Oh, they're, they're Stephen Kleisath again, single player No POW Challenge, 2,134,120, January 23rd, 2015. No offense, guys, but what kind of life do you have that you spend so much time playing Mario Brothers? Really? Uh, a life. You know? And it's Take like, man, I gotta, I gotta... Read a book. I have two jobs, and I... Well, that's probably why I don't get to play video games too much, because I have two jobs, and I have a social life, sort of. And But anyway, that's... Uh, those are the... There are, like, two more tracks listed in Twin Galaxies, but no scores seem to be attached to them. So, um, that's what I had to say about that, because I like acknowledging high scores, although I don't know about the people who like multiple times in the same couple of weeks keep setting world records like come on man some butthole keeps do setting do records. other stuff man. so i think uh is that all we've got to say about this i think we pretty much said everything there is that's all i have to say about uh, mario brothers except that ladies and gentlemen mario that is an italian name it is pronounced mario it is not mario mario is his sister mary yes yes that's mary. very true mary get it right i hate you all <laughs> anyway before i forget something i, I mean i know i know you're technically hosting this episode but yes. i just want to intercept here just wanted to remind people those of you who uh, and this is actually news for those of you who haven't heard episode seven yet uh we will be having a contest in the um over in the next few episodes dun, dun, dun. um we will tell you um all the details as uh, you need to do yo we'll drop the deets we can tell you this much the prize will we kind of still we kind of adapted Phil the no swear gamers uh, method of prize stuff I feel, and uh, I we'll tell you, you more about that later <laughs> so um, anyway just stay tuned uh, we're we're gonna have uh, an interesting variety coming up like what are the, what are the next two games that we will be theming by the time you get this we will already have played them at the underground retrocade uh, Noah sense announcing their our, our visit there because yeah, <laughs> it's only in two days. So I don't know about you, but I have neighbors above me and below me, and to the uh, and to the north of me, who might overhear what we're saying right now. That's so hey, true. those of you who are listening in as I'm recording this, uh, we'll be at Underground Retrocade on Friday, July third, and uh, uh, rumor has it we're going to be doing a remote podcast from there. Yeah, uh, well, recorded, we'll be recording of course. It, we can't we, live. We'll be recording it. We'll be recording a special tour of the facility. Yes, we will. We we will have at least one special guest. So yes, I am really really excited about that. 
and the underground retrocade. Oh, you know what? We we didn't. Uh, I just realized we didn't announce the theme. Oh, what we in a way you kind of did, but this was your your idea for a theme, and the whole reason I wanted to do this episode was because I didn't quite follow what you were getting at. So I would like you to explain it. Games that have the original theme was games that have similar screen layouts. If you look at the playfield on Mario Brothers and the playfield for Joust, they have similar screen layouts. But the more I was thinking about this, is this was before I read the Wikipedia article, they share more than just the same screenshots. They, say, they share the same two-player mechanics. They share the uh, the bonus rounds, and they share the control scheme. So I think the uh, we'll call this theme two games that are completely similar yet different. Makes sense to me. But yeah, I'm glad we did this, though, because I, I knew that we each could say pretty much the same, have a balanced uh, level of material on both of these games, unlike the last episode when it was like 95% Pac-Land, 5% the real Ghostbusters. Yeah, well... So this is a lot more balanced. I think this is a this is a you know a, probably a relief to uh, all two of our listeners. So hey, I think we're up to three now. No, actually, oh, I think we're back right. down to one because I'm hating everyone. So for oh. the next uh, bridge burning episode of the Pie Factory podcast, <laughs> uh, we're going to be doing a couple of games. Uh, why don't you know? I was hosting this one. Why don't you announce them if you remember what they are? Okay, um, the next two games, uh, I don't know if this is going to be the next episode per se, the but uh, the next two games we will be talking about will be Xevious and um, Lost Tomb. Lost Tomb and Xevious. Spoiler alert, I've never played Lost Tomb, and I'm looking forward to playing a new game. Oh, I... Uh... They have there's the Atari uh, there's an Atari 8-bit version of it which captures some of the uh, essence of the arcade game and is a fun game in its own right. But uh, uh, and our plan is to play these games at Underground Retrocade and, and I they hope have that them nobody both. I double checked they yeah, have they... them both. I believe they well, are. Well, let's find out. From what I saw, let's find time. out. So <laughs> we will talk to you all next week. Toodles. Bye bye. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Jim and Sean can be contacted on Facebook via the Pie Factory podcast page, over email at piefactory at fab4it.com, or over Twitter at piefactorypfp. Visit the Pie Factory podcast on the web via Flark at flark.it slash piefactory. And there was much rejoicing. Whoa. Excuse me. Do the sound of a burp, hosehead. All right. Excuse me. I did. Yeah, okay. Well, you win. I don't think sounds work on an album because when I see you do them, it's better. But when I hear them, no, no. Listen to this, hosehead. Guns. Guns, explosions. I'm in World War II in Germany watching everybody fight. A rocket just exploded my brother Doug, and that sound you heard was the sound of phlegm in his throat leaving his mouth after he was blown up. <laughs> I so would do a Doug McKenzie if I uh, if I could do the voice well and if I remember any dialogue from the Great White North. <laughs> oh, I got the album on CD here and I ripped it to D- to MP3. Still a classic. The nice thing about MP3 is I can finally hear the backwards part.
I hear what they're saying. Oh. I mean, I might have to put the song Take Off on my playlist. Okay. And suddenly everybody on my Facebook page is a giant soccer fan. Because the U.S. is playing Germany. Yep. I could care less. <laughs> could you? I could. Hmm. It's possible. Yeah, me too. I could care less. Oh my God. Will you people shut up? You never talk about soccer ever. Oh, guess what I was watching before uh, we started tonight? Terminator 2 Judgment Terminator Day? Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I watched the first 20 minutes of it. What do you think so far? It's definitely an interesting watch, but it's not terribly believable. I mean, first of all, they're supposed to be in Los Angeles, right? Yes. The dude types John Connor in the little skmods system, and only one name comes up in a place as big as L.A.? Seriously? Well, he might be the only one with a criminal record. True, but it just reminded me of how a few years ago my wife... And he could he could have not been looking in an L.A. one. It could have been one of the suburbs. Could be, but it, it just reminded me of how my wife and I were in uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey a few years ago, and we were walking along the boardwalk, and there was some woman who was yelling, Anthony! And no one came out to answer. I was like, Really? Every Tom, Dick, and Harry in New Jersey is named Anthony. Nobody's answering her? Anyway, well, sorry to go off on that. There's an addendum to the Terminator 2. Um, yeah. So, uh, and it really, then they, pro and they programmed him with an Austrian accent. Why not? I don't know. Anyway.